0: In this lesson of our audio course on Lean UX, we explore how to improve the user experience post-launch. This course is free thanks to the support of Balsamic. But- Hello and welcome to this audio course slash podcast on Lean UX. Uh, This course is hosted by myself, Paul Boag. Joining me, as always, is Marcus
1: Lillington. Hello, Marcus. Good morning, Paul. How are you this merry new year? (laughs) Well,
0: yeah. Oh, yeah, this is the first one of the new year, isn't it? Well, I mean, everything's going swimmingly. We went from 20 to 21 and... As soon as those, you know, those <laughs> dials clicked over to the new year, everything went well. So that's good.
1: Uh, yeah, tits up, I believe is the term. Um I don't know, but it's, it's like I don't remember it being this virulent last time. Maybe we were just better behaved and all went home like we were. Well, told no, it so.
0: wasn't as virulent because there was a different strain, wasn't there? That's the thing. We've got this yeah. new strain that's twice as contagious.
1: Uh, anyway, I haven't got it. I don't think. Anyway, or I haven't. No, you know, I don't had think it. I've had it either.
0: Or I had it very early on and didn't yeah. notice. One you or the other.
1: You don't go out there, do you, Paul?
0: Well, also, I li- not only do I not go out <laughs> even under normal circumstances. Um, I also live in the southwest, which is the the least disease ridden part of the UK. But mm.
1: there you go. Mo- I've moved nearer to you, Paul. I am now a little bit closer to you.
0: Are you? Oh, Oh. we'll see each other just as much, I'm sure. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yes,
1: never once a year. Well, there you
0: go. So, for those of you who don't know, um, this season of the podcast is basically a course. We're taking you through um, everything you need to know about doing Lean UX, um, which we you can find out all about if you want to find out about the course, um, everything that we've covered, everything we're going to cover. It's all at boag.world forward slash lean dash UX. Um, but while we're talking about courses, um, I want to j- give a little uh, pimp, if I may, to a, a workshop that I'm running at the beginning of February. Obviously, a Zoom workshop. We don't do in-person workshops anymore, which is a shame because I always like licking the face of all my attendees. It was just <laughs> a thing I did, you know. Um <laughs> I but do anyway. miss doing.
1: i really do miss doing in-person workshops for for projects oh it's yeah just, it's just so Absolutely. much harder doing it online
0: yeah well mm-hmm. to be honest i've pretty much given up at trying to do it online i do it in other ways i do interviews mm. and i do um kind of surveys and you know more asynchronous stuff i guess yeah um, I mean, because
1: we, yeah we would we instead of instead of doing a day you might do four one-hour sessions or something like yeah that, over a couple yeah. of weeks yeah because it, it, it yeah. just doesn't work. It really mm. is painful. And anyway, sorry, wants... I interrupted your advertisement.
0: No, 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 no. It's a good interruption. So anyway, actually, it's, it's kind of relevant to the um, to the mm. topic of the workshop, which is that the workshop is about um, running design-led projects. Um, you know, so if you've got a, a project with, I don't know, you're redesigning a website or even branding kind of projects – this workshop, I think, would be very helpful for you. We're going to look at all the different aspects of um, how to go about that process being slightly less painful than than it is under normal circumstances. I'm not, I'm not claiming it's going to revolutionize things and suddenly <laughs> every client is going to love everything you do. I think that would be slightly... Um, unfair of me. But after kind of 25 years of doing this kind of stuff, you pick up things, don't you? And you you learn yes. what works and what doesn't. So I'm going to share those in four sessions, as Marcus has just said, four one-hour sessions of teaching with about half an hour to an hour of Q&A and kind of digging into the real problems that you, you experience. Um, so we're going to do one session on preparing for your design projects where we're going to look at how you can make life so much easier if you kind of set everything up front we're going to do one on producing those initial design concepts and um how to go about doing that in a way that engages the stakeholders without letting them take over. Um then we're going to do one on dealing with design presentations and feedback um and ensure that you don't get the well it doesn't quite pop, you know or whatever else. That's really and important, then finally isn't it? <laughs> yeah, of course, it's, it's got to pop. But Everything in the user's pop. opinion of what pops, not what uh, the stakeholder thinks. Right. Anyway, um, and then finally, we're going to look at ensuring your design survives. And what I mean by that is, you know, when it gets handed across to the developer and then it goes live, you know how many times that you like go, oh, yeah, I could reference that in this upcoming proposal. That was a good piece of design work. And you look at the final website. Um, that's been live for a couple of years and it's a train wreck. So, we're going to look a little bit at that and what to do about that as well. If any of that sounds vaguely interesting, go to boag.world forward slash design workshop, all one word. So, no, so it's boag.world. World is the extension, right? I, just, we, <laughs> oh. I didn't even know you could get a
1: world extension. That's cool. That's I am Boag cool. of the world. Can, can anyway. I make a, a, a suggestion? Um, yeah, because you, you do really know your stuff on this subject, <clears throat> and I think that one of the thing one of the things why you're good at it is you know how to deal with uh, clients or people people who let's say difficult customers. And yeah. I don't think it would hurt at all if you included a little bit of that in your course because oh, you're there's crackloads of it
0: yeah there there is crap loads of yeah. of the you know things like you never directly challenge a client when they say a dumbass mm. idea. you instead <laughs> ask lots of questions yeah. um that helps them realize they 're saying a dumbass thing you know and mm. uh, we 're going to get i mean i 've got loads of them actually I just sent out a newsletter for those people that are subscribed to my newsletter. The last one I sent out was ten quick fire tips on on getting um, design sign-off and approval and all of that kind of stuff, so it's a it's a thing that yeah, I'm quite opinionated about. What am I not opinionated about? Of course, cricket. You know, that's the big question. Hmm. Anyway, going back to this uh, course that we're doing yes. now, yes, the Lean UX one. So, in the last lesson, we looked at testing during design and development. So. This time, we're looking at an, a subject that I am also extremely opinionated about, which is post-launch. So your website's gone live. Now what? Do you just walk away? Do we all put up our feet, drink Mai Tais, um, and <laughs> God, sit on That the beach? sounds
1: fantastic, Paul. Do you know oh, what? No. I want more than anything. Anything. I mean, you know, I, I miss the pub and all that, kind of, but I just want to go and sit by a pool and yes. have somebody bring me a cocktail, and it's really yes. hot. Even Do if it's just for like a half an hour. <laughs> my
0: my my child, right? I've got a teenager, right? I've just turned eighteen, and um, the most kind of think of a stereotypical gamer teenager, never leaves the house, keeps yeah. the curtains drawn the whole time, totally totally introverted. Turned to me and said. I really want a holiday. I want to go away somewhere nice. I was, mm. I was I I I I honestly didn't know how to respond <laughs> because every yeah, every time we ever talk about going on holidays it's oh, I'll miss my friends and all of this kind of thing, you know. Mm. I don't want to leave the, the you know <laughs> my games and but no, this time desperate uh, to get out. I think book. we all are, aren't we?
1: Good book, cocktail, sunshine. Yeah. Oh. oh, I'm too hot. I'll have a little splosh in the pool yeah yeah that'd be good anyway (laughs) anyway sorry well that's yeah that's that's kind of
0: you killed the buzz didn't you i was all enthusiastic about this subject now i've just gone off luckily i'd record already recorded my talk um where i talk about my tips for for post-launch optimization when i was feeling more enthusiastic before marcus drained the life out of me so let's listen to that now
2: (laughs) To
0: understand the real power of post-launch optimization of your website, you need to understand two characteristics of the web that make it a unique and exciting medium to design for. Those are its ability to gather unprecedented amounts of data on how users are interacting with it and the ease with which things can be changed. Compare it, for example, to a printed brochure. Once that brochure goes out into the world, you can't change it. And you have no idea about how people are interacting with it. Yet, despite the enormous potential provided by digital, many organizations seem to completely ignore it, treating it pretty much like it's a brochure. They launch a website, and then other than a few textual changes and updates, they make no substantial changes to the design for a number of years until they do a redesign of the entire site again. By contrast, companies that get the web are continually optimizing their website post-launch to ensure they reach their full potential. The importance of this ongoing optimization really cannot be overstated. It's the most important part of the development of a website. In truth, you can do all the pre-launch testing you want, but it's not going to mean anything until you see real users responding on the website once it's been launched. Pre-launch testing can certainly avoid costly mistakes, don't get me wrong, but it can not give you a realistic picture of the real experience on the actual live site. However, once the site is live and real users are interacting with it daily, you can see issues emerge and discover opportunities for improvement. If you've allowed time and resources for post-launch optimization, you can significantly improve engagement, conversion, and word-of-mouth recommendation. Even small changes post-launch have an enormous effect on the efficiency and effectiveness of your website. For example, Jared Spool removed the need for a user to log into an e-commerce website once and saw a 45% increase in sales, which equated to $300 million of additional revenue in the first year alone. But post-launch testing can provide significant cost savings too because it avoids the need for expensive redesigns. You see, redesigning a website is incredibly wasteful for two reasons. When a site is redesigned, it typically throws out the good with the bad, starting almost entirely from scratch. It's effectively a blunt tool that ignores that some elements of your existing website will be working. Second, because redesigns are so expensive, they only happen every few years, and that means for most of its life, your website is not operating at peak efficiency. Instead, we should be evolving our websites over time through a rigorous process of post-launch testing. But what exactly does that look like? So once the site goes live, the user and users have had time to adjust to it and and settle in, so to speak. An organization typically adopts a cyclic process to optimization. And this process consists of three steps that the organization repeats on almost a continual basis. And these steps are, one, find a problem area to address. Two, diagnose the exact problem. And three, test potential solutions. So we're going to explore each of those steps in more detail, starting with finding a problem area. Optimizing a website begins by identifying areas of the site that are not performing as effectively as possible. And to do that, you need a clear definition of what a problem actually consists of. When seeking out areas of improvement on a website, I typically look for shortcomings in one of three areas. Engagement. Are users failing to engage with the content or abandoning the website prematurely? Usability. Are users struggling to find the content they require or complete critical tasks on the website? And then conversion. Are users abandoning the website before completing a call to action Um, are those that did act failing to return to the website at some kind of later date. Looking at these kinds of metrics will give you an indication whether there's room for improvement on your website or not. However, you then need to identify where on the site things are going wrong and analytics can typically help with this. Finding problem areas on a website is not an exact science and does require a certain degree of intuition. However, analytics are a good starting point for identifying general areas where there may be issues that need addressing. Now, I'm the first to admit I'm no analytics expert and my eyes seem to glaze over every time I open Google Analytics. However, even with my limited knowledge, I find it relatively easy to identify potential problems with the website. In particular, I pay attention to bounce pages. Now, those are pages where the user arrives on the site and immediately leaves without really viewing any content at all. Pages that don't draw the user deeper into the site and towards some kind of call to action. These are the kind of pages that normally require improvements. I also look at site routes. What route does the user take through the website? Are they taking the most direct route to a call to action or are they being distracted? Are there some routes um, that perform worse than others? If people follow a particular path, are they more likely to abandon the site? That kind of thing. Then I also look, obviously, at drop-off points. What pages cause the user to exit the site? And finally, I look at high dwell time pages. What pages slow the user in their journey? What pages do people get stuck on? Now, notice that I'm not. I'm interested here in, in very specific pages. In other words, knowing the overall dwell time or the overall bounce rate of a site won't help me narrow down on particular problem areas. I need to know what specific pages have a high bounce rate or a, a long dwell time. So what you should end up with is a list of potential pages that could have problems. Of course, just because a page has a high dwell time or many people abandon the site after viewing it doesn't necessarily mean it's failing. Neither does knowing what pages um, might have a problem allow us to diagnose the exact issue with that page. To work out exactly what's going on, we need to look at each problem page in more depth. Unsurprisingly, I tend to start uh, by focusing on the most poorly performing page based on the criteria we've already talked about. So once I've got a page I want to look at, I move on to step two, which is diagnosing the problem. So I basically then will look at that page and ascertain the nature of the problem with the page. And to do that, I use an app like Full Story or Hotjar. That's because both of these apps have two really useful tools for diagnosing problems. And those tools are heat maps and session recorders. Heat maps are a great starting point for narrowing down potential issues on the page. The two main types of heat maps that you're going to be interested in are scroll maps and click maps. A scroll map gives you a strong indication of where people's attention is on a page. If people are scrolling straight past some critical piece of content or a call to action, then you may well have found your problem with the page. Click maps, on the other hand, are useful because they help see if people are understanding the page. Are they trying to click on things that are not clickable? Are they clicking secondary content that's leading them further away from your call to action? Or worse still, are they rage clicking randomly out of frustration? It happens more often than you think. Heat maps give a useful overview of the user's behavior, but watching back some user sessions will provide more specific insights. Once you can see possible problems with the page, it's worth watching back a few sessions to see if people are behaving like you expect them to behave. For example, imagine that the users are clicking a non-clickable element on a page. Using a tool like FullStory, you can filter all of the recorded sessions and watch back only sessions where users have tried to click on that element. Now you can see um, what they did next and even in some cases, what led them to click on that element in the first place. After clicking, did they abandon the site or did they just adapt and continue without an issue? If they abandoned, then that's clearly something you need to fix. Of course, session recordings do have their limits. Sometimes you will observe users' behavior and have no idea why they took the action they did. And in those cases, where you're left totally confused about what's going on it's time to turn to usability testing. If time allows, once I've identified a specific issue on a specific page, I like to run some quick usability testing. I set up a simple test that requires a user to encounter the problem area that I've identified, and then I see what happens. I observe their behavior and ask them to explain what they did and why they did it. Typically, these are just carried out over Zoom and only take a couple of minutes each to complete. Um, And I often just rely on friends and family for this kind of testing unless the website is highly specialized. By this point, I will have a pretty solid idea of the problem associated with the page that I'm looking at and possibly have a few ideas about how to fix it. But how do I know which approach will be best and be confident that I'm not going to make things worse when I roll it out? And that brings us on to the final step in the process, which is to test our potential solutions. When it comes to testing potential solutions, I've got two basic approaches that I use, quantitative and qualitative, right? With that in mind, let's look at these two options and when you should use each one. Now, one of the most popular options when it comes to optimizing a website post-launch is A-B testing. This quantitative approach to testing improvements works well because it tests with real users interacting completely naturally on your live website. If the solution performs well in A-B testing, you can be confident that it will work well when you roll it out across the entire site to all audiences. Now, in case you're unaware, at the most basic level, A-B testing involves showing a percentage of site visitors different versions of a page. And this allows you to try one or more potential solutions on a live site to see if it performs better than the current version. By only showing the variations to a small percentage of users, you avoid rolling out the solution that could ultimately just make things a lot worse. To ascertain whether a solution will perform better, you need to gather enough data for it to be statistically accurate. And this perceived need for a large number of results can put people off of using A-B testing, thinking that it's a tool just for highly trafficked sites like Amazon. And although A-B testing is more suited to high-traffic websites because they can quickly generate the required level of results, it can be used on any site with some adaptation. One answer for low-traffic websites is just to wait. Wait until you get enough results. Yes, this does require some patience, but it will ensure statistically significant results. Another approach is to make a judgment call on the solution's effectiveness without waiting for it to be statistically significant. Just because your A-B testing tool says you don't have enough results doesn't mean you have to listen to it. The final option is to adapt the test to increase the number of results you receive. That can be done by closing the gap between the thing that you're testing and the point of conversion. For example, changing the text on a newsletter sign-up form is intimately associated with the success criteria of clicking the subscribe button. However, testing the impact of a blog post title on newsletter sign-ups isn't so strictly related to the point of conversion, and so your conversion rate will be relatively low. That means you're going to have to wait longer for statistically significant results. So instead of making your success criteria something that doesn't happen very often, like signing up to a newsletter, you could look at a smaller, more common action. For example, if you wanted to test those blog post titles, you may be better testing how many users click to view the post rather than how many of those go on then to sign up. Without a doubt, A-B testing is powerful and an excellent way of optimizing your website, especially when it comes to testing different combinations of text and imagery. In fact, there are many tools out there that allow you to create variations of content on your site without any coding skills whatsoever. Google even offer a free tool called Optimize that requires no setup if you've already got Google Optim- um, Ab- Analytics installed. However, things become much more complicated if the changes to the, uh, in the variations that you're testing are more substantial. In that case, qualitative testing may be more appropriate. Qualitative testing involves essentially testing a prototype with a small number of users. So instead of testing your solution on the live site, you create a prototype and carry out usability testing, basically. It does actually have some advantages over A-B testing, not only because you don't um, have to rely on statistically significant numbers of results. It also means that you're not going to have to wait around to find out which solution performs the best qualitative testing has another advantage too. It tells you why a certain variation performs better. And that's because you you can actually ask users why they did what they did and why they prefer one version over another. However, probably the biggest advantage of qualitative testing is that you're testing with a prototype. And so you don't need to create a fully working version of your variation um, that you roll out on the live site. And that allows you to test more complex things Um, with nothing more than a design comp or some wireframes. Both approaches have their advantages and disadvantages, and so it makes sense to combine them as appropriate. Together, they should lead to a solution um, that will allow you to fix whatever problem you've identified. And once you've rolled out your solution, then you can turn your attention to the next issue. You see, the secret to optimizing your website is to make it an ongoing process. That means when you fix one problem, you return to the start of your three-step process and begin again by identifying the next biggest issue in the experience. By continually iterating on the site over time, you will gradually improve its effectiveness and avoid the need for costly redesigns a few years down the line. Of course, The reality is that even if you're keen to optimize your website over the long term, it's not always easy to get stakeholders to agree. I therefore want to end by sharing three tips for ensuring post-launch optimization actually happens. And the first piece of advice I can give is to ensure you build site optimization into your project plan when redesigning a website. A big part of the problem is that most project plans end when the website launches, and that's never a good idea, even if you intend not to do ongoing post-launch optimization. When a website is launched, there's going to inevitably be bugs to fix and content that needs tweaking, and that's why I tend to favor putting site launch about two-thirds of the way through the overall project timeline. That allows ample time for fixing problems and an opportunity to establish the habit of post-launch optimization. Second, I would encourage you to talk about post-launch functionality from the very start of the project. You see, stakeholders normally have loads of ideas about how the site could be improved that they come up with over the project. So to avoid scope creep, start a phase two wish list. And that will stop scope creep and establish the idea that the website can evolve and change post-launch. Finally, I would encourage you to take every opportunity to talk about post-launch period during development. Ask questions about how stakeholders are going to resource and manage the website post-launch. One of the reasons I love the UK government's digital service manual is because it puts so much emphasis on the live stage of the website. It defines it as a unique phase right alongside the discovery phase, the alpha phase and the beta phase. They even have a retirement phase, which is something that's often overlooked. All of that said, when it comes to post-launch optimization, something is better than nothing. Even a few weeks of post-launch optimization once the website goes live is better than none at all. Stakeholders don't need to commit to improving the website forever, but if you can get them even to do it for a short while, they'll quickly see the benefits of doing it for the long term. So there you go, Marcus. What did you disagree on this one? This is my favourite part where you tell me I'm wrong the whole time.
1: There's only one thing, actually. But I thought the most oh, interesting right. thing is how, and I don't want to preempt the interview that's about to come up, but yeah. how we both reached the conclusion that this is the most important part of the project or, you know, yes. really, this is it. This yeah. is, you gonna know, put any effort into particularly user engagement of some sort, mm. this is when mm. you should be doing it. Uh, the only thing I don't necessarily agree with is that uh, and, it, you know, you might be inclined to make the odd, you know, black and white statement, Paul. No. That they, yeah, me? Said, uh, that a redesign throws out the good with the bad. And I thought, that's not really true, because you can keep the good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, you are right. But it it
0: has a tendency it feels like a blunt instrument that's the that's the words i should use i think mm. in future um because i do often say it throws out the good with the bad and, and you are correct It is not true but it it can be sometimes a sledgehammer to crack a nut kind of attitude
1: mmm yes. no, I, no, well, that's I really, things i'll, I'll take that oh, oh right i like the idea of including site optimization site optimization into a project plan Mm. From an agency perspective, that would be great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. but, it's, but it's kind of true, even if you're doing the whole thing in house, yeah. make sure that you include what's going to happen for the year after the site goes live yeah. to, to get people thinking about it. I mean, it's kind of like we just, we almost assume that that's what everybody thinks, but they don't.
0: They don't. No, everybody thinks go live, you're done. There, uh, it's still that brochure mentality, I think, you know. Yeah. Less so these days than it was, but I still think in a lot of stakeholders' minds, you know a, a project has a finite ending and if you don't tell them otherwise they'll presume that ending is when the project when the website's live
1: i think it's because a lot of senior people see things from a budgetary point of view right we're going yeah. to spend this amount now and once that's been spent i can move on to thinking about the other thing but mm. it's obviously it's a, it's an ongoing yeah um, i mean absurd. i wrote a whole
0: article about how your your, spread, your financial department is destroying your digital strategy because because it is seen as a capital investment where you hmm. effectively invest every few years in in redesigning your website rather than uh, a a kind of overhead like marketing is you know a, hmm. um, oh, what's the word it's not a capital it's a ongoing investment you yeah know, I know, like I know what
1: you mean I can't think of what the word is either but yeah that, I mean this is exactly what we're talking about what we're saying here is if you do this bit properly. You'll mm. probably make more money if that's what you do, if making money mm. is your thing. Um, mm. But you'll do it better. Um, and really, the only other thing I've got to add on that is that I agree entirely that you need to define what you're measuring. That's the key thing. Mm. Don't just go, let's make stuff better. You need to be very precise about yeah. what you're trying to achieve. And, and I, re- I-, I really liked... I might be might be getting things mixed up with what I spoke to what Matt said Matt, Matt, yeah. Matt about but the idea of, of no this was you about focusing in on stuff if if it's going to take too long to get to get a response with ab testing or something like that then just make it an easier thing to measure
0: well um, actually
1: we both said that yeah yeah
0: because it was really interesting listening to Matt right um because we're about we're about to play you an interview that Marcus did with Matt Curry and When Matt was at Love Honey, which he'll come on to and explain all of that in a minute, but he, me and him diverged quite a lot in our attitudes towards testing and things like that. He was quite dismissive of of qualitative testing, so usability testing and things like that, Um, and very, very heavy on A-B testing. Um, Now he's moved on. To a place where, as he says, has less traffic than, Mm. than Love Honey. His, his approach has adapted. And actually we've suddenly come very much back in line. And I have to say, it's not just him. I've become more enthusiastic about A B testing as well. So we've kind of met in the middle again, which is really fascinating how we've kind of come at it from totally different angles and come to a very similar place. Anyway, let's listen to that, that interview, because it it is a really good one. Matt is always superb to talk to. Um, So here is Marcus's interview with Matt Curry.
1: So, as you know, the theme of this whole series has been how to do kind of lean UX or how to do UX design quickly and maybe on a budget and the best way we can and today's subject as i'm sure we've already been discussing with paul's section is how to optimize your site with post-launch testing um and someone that we've talked to many times uh, on the show in the past, somebody we used to work with, uh, about the ongoing effectiveness of websites, probably someone who taught us an awful lot about doing that, is Matt Curry. So welcome, Matt Curry. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? I, I'm, I'm okay. I've just moved house, so I'm wee bit stressed. Um, and uh, But it, it's funny, I've, I've moved twice in the last year, and, and you kind of build up these, like, once I've moved, everything will be fine. <laughs> <laughs> but it is isn't uh yes no. i'm quite surrounded by boxes and and a little wee bit stressed but it is nice to be
3: don't be don't be stressed you need to meditate that's what you need to do med- i took up meditation last year uh and it's just like 10 10 minutes every morning uh just focus on your breathing and it just helps order like order your thoughts and you you, you know i can't say that i'm free of stress but i'm significantly less stressed than i used to be
1: that's really cool i mean i do pilates um and the I, I, at the moment because of covid one of the good things about covid is a class i used to go to miles away is now online so i can go back to that yeah, and she's very on me and very kind of focused yeah. on breathing so it can be a
3: little bit kind of wibbly wee yeah um uh, it, it's nice you know it just gives you like an opportunity or an excuse just not have to do something for 10 minutes
1: yeah and, and, and yeah, i quite like that especially doing it in the morning that makes a lot of yeah. sense anyway we're, really know, <laughs> <laughs>
3: we're already off topic
1: we're already off topic right? yeah, we are already off topic well, the first thing i would like to offer you um because yeah. it, it's probably been a while since you've been on the show and
3: it's been a long time uh, it's possibly a decade
1: really oh wow yes. okay all right yes. fair enough um i thought we've had you on more recently than that but who knows i, I believe you entirely uh, <laughs> we're probably on the t- ten thousandth show today aren't we I- i've no idea um but so therefore for those people who have re- joined within the last 10 years please can you tell uh the listeners a little bit about you what you do no. what you've done in your career Certainly. that kind of thing
3: uh, okay. Right. Uh, I'm Matt Curry and I have been doing e-commerce for, for a very, very long time. Mm. Um, cert- certainly two decades. Um, and I, I essentially I specialize in, uh, oh boy, lots. So I, analytics and testing yes. predominantly. Um, integration, analytics and testing are probably probably my my three wheelhouses Um, in that i will i will come in and i'll look at a business and i'll say right so we need we need at least these services to all be plumbed in Um, and here's how you plumb them in and then we'll start gathering data um, and look at that data and think about right how can we organize that data and from the analysis analysis of that data, we'll then look at testing of a site to try and improve whatever it is that you're trying to improve. Most of the time, that's revenue. It's not always, but most of the time, that's revenue. And then look, take it from a very analytical approach of uh, everything from kind of funnels, micro-goals, um, Sometimes much, much longer term metrics, you know, uh, customer lifetime revenue or customer lifetime profit, which is a really hard one to get mm. um, and figure out, right, so what do, we, what do we need to test to be able to improve that metric for you?
1: I'm going to jump in on that because um, I want to ask you about all of these things. But can you first tell us a little bit about who you've done that for and whether it's been successful, yes. uh, that, that kind of thing? Because you've got a pretty working, interesting story.
3: I do. <laughs> um, I started uh, working uh, with with yourself and Paul um, on the Water Farm Foods website. Um, I worked for... Uh, the UK arm of a, of a large German corporation called Appetito.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and they had a, a business unit called Butcherfarm Foods, which was essentially um, posh meals on wheels. It was, uh, yeah. To the over 80s. And as you imagine, back in uh, the early 2000s, um, the internet wasn't, wasn't much of a thing, um, or anywhere near as much of a thing back then, and certainly not for the over 80s. No. Um, so trying to get these people to to purchase these things online, um, and this is for a very traditional telephone-based business. Um, trying to get these customers to order online, um, was incredibly tough. Uh, we looked at the sort of uh, audience that we had, and and realised it was split fifty-fifty, roughly between the actual service users, so the the people who would would eat product and what we call the influencers. Uh, influencers mean something very different nowadays. But the the purchase influencers tend to be like the the son or daughter of yeah. um of the of the end user. Um, and I remember uh, me and Paul going on a little road trip, uh, probably about fifteen years ago. It's um, still referenced today, these stories because you know literally going into people's homes. You don't you don't. You don't get that in, well, obviously. I don't your times But you don't get that where you where you see the equipment that they're using. Um, that you know the, the the proceed to basket button might be obscured by a post-it note that's got their password written on it. Yeah, you know, it's 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 very strange and was extraordinary eye opening. Um, and then obviously I went from selling frozen food to old people into the sex industry. <laughs> uh,
1: <laughs> um,
3: and I think I think it was because of because of uh, the Boag World podcast, because uh, uh, Neil, and the fans of Love Honey, uh, listens to that podcast and invited me to to come in and and just have a look at their site and give a presentation. I remember um, the presentation was called the fear. Uh, because as you went through the Love Funny website, um, there was essentially you know, multiple graphics and and microcopy essentially telling you to be to be worried. <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, Oh no, you know, you can tell people don't worry, but if you tell people don't worry, like 20 times, they're going to worry. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so saying, oh, don't worry. Our, our packaging is discreet or, or don't worry. No one will find out and the number. You know, you tell that enough times and people will freak out. Um, and there was, there was one particular page that had, you know, 10 pieces of information essentially saying, don't worry. Um, and it was, yeah, it was not good. Um, and so after that, essentially, uh, Neil asked me to, to come work for them. And I, I was there for t- 10 years. And then, uh, love honey got, got bought, um, managed to buy a house out of that. Which is nice. Uh, and then, um yeah i now i now work part-time uh selling furniture to very rich people <laughs> that's all i'm
1: saying <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic um well I, I think it's fair to say uh ob- obviously with love honey being born i didn't realize you were a shareholder how fantastic is that um you've been successful i think you've you, uh, we we all learned so much back in the Wiltshire Farm yeah. days um uh, and I think a lot of that is we learned from you, I and mean, hopefully you learned from us as well. Oh, um, but let's go back to what you were, you were getting into the detail um, and talking about funnels and micro goals and lifetime stuff and that. But when we first <laughs> – when I, when I first – um asked you uh, got in touch about doing this interview in our email exchange you you used the phrase rapid analysis and testing and i thought that's yes. exactly what we're talking about here but can you explain what you meant by that i think you were starting to do it earlier but yeah if you can sure. get into the detail a bit that, that would be great. Well, it's, it's the
3: concept of the concept of failing fast
1: right essentially
3: what it is um you know when when you're at love honey you have you have visitors you know you're you're sweating visitors. You're you're not short of traffic yeah. to test, um, but that's not always the case in every business. No, and not. so, you know, if if you if you if, you, if you, you look at like the normal, how long should I run this test for? Tools um, for for say a, a, a small to medium based enterprise. You're looking at months. You are yeah. looking at months. For some of these tests. And obviously with, with some tools, there's a limited number of tests of concurrent tests that you can run. You know, there's something like like Google Optimize, I think only allows you to, to run six concurrent tests. Mm. So you have to pick your battles. And if you're losing a battle, you have to you know concede defeat pretty quickly. And so I've I've kind of moved away um, from the uh from liking the concept of measuring everything and testing on the final conversion metric um through to just testing for to the next step if that makes sense
1: could you give me an example of that
3: yeah so 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 say you're an e-commerce site Mm. um and all e-commerce sites essentially work the same way in that there is a product discovery phase right you know you you think roughly i want to buy uh a plant a fake plant i want to buy a fake plant because i'm rubbish at looking after plants for example sure Um, and there is a product discovery phase where uh right i i think this site sells fake plants um i'm going to try to find some fake plants uh for me to buy so you've got that that phase and hopefully um the 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 metric for that is uh did they view a product Mm. on your site so, so that is, that is the, the, the micro goal. Um, and then you've got the next step, which is right. Did they add it to basket? And then you've got the next step which is right. Did they, did they view the basket? Because not always adding to basket leads to a, a basket view from sure. the basket. Did they, did they then proceed in some form into a checkout? And nowadays you've got like express checkouts and Apple pay and all sorts of mm. Um but did they do something that would have expressed an interest in purchasing? Um, and then finally did they complete their purchase and so nowadays in the types of testing i do because i don't have the amount of traffic um i have to i have to only focus on the next step get them to the next step
1: sure
3: and then once once you've increased them getting to the next step then you know future you can worry about getting them to the step after that now obviously you have to kind of be a little bit more pragmatic about this you know if the, if you've offered them a free puppy um <laughs> to get them to press this button and you don't deliver on the free puppy further down the line then yeah that's that's never going to work so you know you always have to be mindful right am i actually going to convert these people by moving them to the next step in the manner that i think i want to yeah okay and there's different kinds of ways of doing that. And there's, you know, you always have to kind of think about, right, what sort of business are you? Um, there's, you know, you think about the tools of selling. So urgency, rarity, provenance, and proof. That, that's generally how you get someone to buy something. You know, there's, there's a limit to some of this stuff. Do you want to ramp up the urgency so much that you essentially give them a heart attack when, when they're buying? Cause we've all been in that. So you know, if you're buying like concert tickets, or, you know, I wanted to buy a graphics card a few weeks ago. And, and, you know, I don't know if you know, but like the new ray tracing graphics cards are
1: like gold dust. I right didn't. Now. No, I'm not a big gamer.
3: <laughs> they are. Um, and uh, I signed up for, for like a, a, a stock notification email so email me when this is in stock sure they email me you go onto the site they go oh we've only got 3 of these and there's 2000 people looking at them you better buy it now and they give you a countdown um yeah you know, it's 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 it is literally the most stressful purchasing experience ever I is think, that something
1: you want to do yeah i mean i think <laughs> that in that case that's a genuine Sorry, I'm going off a little bit of a tangent here, but they are. that's a genuine urgency. We really have only got a few of these things yeah, on the shelf. Yeah. Um, this is a subject that we've covered a few times in the past few years. Is this seems to be that literally anything that you. know. At, it's like, oh, f- 17 other people are looking at this, and it's like, I don't care.
3: Yeah. I mean, we, we did that at Love Honey, but we did that at Love Honey for a different reason. Um, we had uh, a project called Hyper Normalization.
1: Yeah, Which I can see you're going with this. That's clever. Yeah,
3: the, the theory was, yeah, people think they're weird for yes. looking at this stuff. And if we say, well, actually, no, if there's 20 other people looking at this thing, you're not alone in liking it.
1: Yeah, no, that's, but that's a wonderful use of it. It, it, Yeah. (laughs) That's, that's, uh, yes, that's, that's actually making people feel good about themselves rather than making people worried that they have to buy this thing now. Although I actually, it has the exact opposite effect these days, but. And and
3: for me, when, when you're testing something, you kind of, I, I sort of think, right, what emotion am I actually, actually manipulating here? Because, you know, we've all been in this business for a very long time. And we know that moving a button from, you know, the left-hand side of the page to the right-hand side of the page or changing it from green to blue, it doesn't change the world. So, you need to think about, right, what, what actually am I wanting to change on this page? Do I want them to feel better about my brand? Do I want them to feel like they're getting a bargain? Uh, do I want to, you know, think that they're becoming part of a community? What, what is it that I'm trying to do here? Because just moving stuff about on a page doesn't, doesn't cut it. Maybe, you know, back in the old days when when the fold existed and, you know, when, when people were unfamiliar with interfaces, maybe that counted. But nowadays, you know, you, you need to think about what you're actually conveying and test
1: that. Sure. Talking about testing, because um, that's kind of what we're covering today, is... Uh, what methods of testing have you used over the years and what do you think works the best and i guess there's a, a, a certain amount of yeah. it depends what you're testing but
3: it depends, depends we're what we're talking about by testing are we talking about um user testing and there's numerous forms of that are we talking about statistical testing
1: i'm and, i'm leaving it deliberately open
3: oh oh okay right well they, <laughs> these are two very different caps okay let's talk about user testing um things that have worked for me as i've said um the you know me and paul's little road trip yeah was was literally the most insight you can get i don't think you could do that sort of thing nowadays um but literally going into people's homes was was amazing um in-person user testing um i think i'm i'm getting less and less value out of
1: um why is that
3: i don't know i think it's difficult and it it, it, in-person user testing is sort of starting to have the same problems as remote testing used to have Mm. and that remote testing and, and still has um, remote testing, what you can find is that people will just read out an interface to you. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, they'll, they'll say, right, I see this option and this option and this option, and this option. And they won't tell you what's going on in their mind.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and in person, I think because people are getting more and more familiar with interfaces and and everything is essentially turning into Facebook and Twitter and, and whatever, Um. People are just reading out interfaces to you again because they don't know that their choices are almost innate because they've used so many other websites. Does that make any sense? I
1: don't. It totally yeah. does. And I, I think that user testing works on things that are really broken. If, you, if, if you're yes. at the start of a, a project when you're trying to kind of redesign something um, and there's something that already exists, doing user testing at that point on what is already there. I think is really helpful. Yeah. But if, you, if you've got something that works quite well, which is what we're talking about today, in ongoing effectiveness, then, yeah, I'm not sure. I guess if it, it could be, you could use it as a, a kind of way of making sure you're on track, maybe. Um, yeah. But, but, I, but, but I, I agree. Would that, you would
3: know that from your analytics anyway. True,
1: true yeah.
3: So, so, yeah, so in terms of that testing, um, you can do, uh, you know, just like design testing um, can sometimes work, you know, the, you know, flash something up for seven seconds and see what they recall or you know on this design where would you click if you wanted to do x mm-hmm.
2: um
3: that that can be quite useful but again you're doing that remotely so you don't know what's going on in their head and you can't you can't ask them follow-up
1: questions annoyingly yes
3: um and oh do you remember when clicktail or was it ClickTail? clicktail um,
1: I'm yeah, I remember the name. What did they do? Yeah, but do you remember when, when one of them implied that mouse
3: tracking was the same as user testing? Um, I remember they had this big campaign. Is No, you don't have to recruit users for user testing. You can just watch people use your site in real time and know exactly what they're doing. And you think, no, you don't, because you have no idea what they're thinking when they do
1: it that's that's, um, that's the problem isn't it, it the, the the actually user making user usability testing or you know one-to-one or either remote you know, or in person is actually about how good the facilitator is yeah um,
3: absolutely uh, a, a shortcut i have found um is hot jar right which is just one of those those uh like pop-up you know, if, if they go to close the, the tab or, I mean, it doesn't really work on mobile, but to go to close the tab, a little thing pops up and they say, Hey, is everything okay? Do you have any questions? Um, why, you know, can you tell us why you're leaving the site? Um, and that, the insight you get out of that, because mm. it's free, it's free text. I mean, it takes forever to analyze because you're like literally having to read hundreds and hundreds of responses. Um, but the, the text you get out of that and the insight you get out of that is, is valuable. Because something like, um, you know, someone telling you that it's actually because you're the reason they're abandoning your site is because your delivery cost is too expensive.
1: Is super valuable. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And that's not something that you would get. E- you wouldn't get it out of analytics. You might not even get it out of user testing because money doesn't really matter in user testing. Value doesn't really matter in user testing. Um, yeah, that sort of stuff. And that's, that's quite cheap to knock together and stick on your site. And then, and then you've got your statistical testing. Yes. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, their names change all the time because they keep getting bought by other things. Um, Oracle Maximizer, I've um, used VWO, yeah. um, Google Optimize, uh, AB Tasty, which is terrible. Um, <laughs> I've never heard of that one. <laughs> oh, oh, you're lucky. Um, But yes, there's there's lots of these these essentially show people one thing, show people another thing, um, which will perform better star systems. Mm -hmm. Um, You've got the the big uh, multivariate testing tools, like like something like Oracle Maximizer, um, with all sorts of of fun uh, statistical methods of of reducing the number of options and reducing the length these tests have to run. Um, But to be honest, you know, certainly where, where... you know i work at the moment um google optimize largely does the job for me um you can you can code up a test pretty easy i'm sort of you know again i'm very much of the ilk of let's make a a big meaty test if we're going to test something let's you know i used i used to call it finger painting where you literally just move something from one part of the page to another or you change its color Mm. um they're they're never really going to do anything so if you're testing something, test something big and have a hypothesis for it. So, you know, if I, if I introduce this element onto the page or if I remove this element, um, or if I, if I uh, you know, change uh, the promise of this page in some way, um, then I think people will react to that change by doing X. And it's, it's kind of, you know, it's a basic hypothesis. Um, but but yeah, optimise dual optimise will largely do what you want it to do. Um, make sure that you feed the data into some form of third-party analytics, um, and then again, focus on the next on the on the micro goal. So the next step of your funnel, um, but keep um, keep in mind the ultimate conversion goal.
1: That's fabulous. I, I think basically what we're saying here is try and keep what you're learning. On-site, very kind of like make it as relevant as possible. Because as soon as you go abstract it away into a kind of room where you're talking to people about something that yeah. they aren't actually using, that's okay at the start of a project maybe. But ongoing-wise, try and keep it oh, yeah. within the site.
3: I, I, again, just going back to that, that hot jar example, mm. um, it, it, that is – I mean, I'm like, is that the thing where I've, where I've learned the most. Certainly recently, mm. where I've learned the most is just a free form why are you leaving question? And most people, most people will answer it. Most people will say, oh, well, I found out what I wanted to, um, I wanted to achieve. And this goes, do you remember task completion rates?
1: Yes. <laughs>
3: the, the old four questions thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, you know, it, it's still a very valuable tool. You know, why did you, you know, someone lands on your site. You ask them, why have you come to our site? Someone goes to leave the site. You ask them, why are you leaving? Were you able to do the thing you came here to do? Not everyone comes to convert. Some people are just there for information. Some people are just say for inspiration. Mm. Um, were they able to do what they wanted to do? And there's your task completion rate. So that's, that's something immediately that you can test on your site um, without, without going into a user testing room. Um, as, as I said before, stick hot jar on the site, ask people why they're leaving. And you, you'll, get, you'll get nonsense, of course you'll get nonsense, but you'll get things that you can actually act upon. Not that you can always test them. You know, something like, um, uh, as I said, delivery charge. Right, so can you, if delivery charge isn't something you can really test, mm. not easily, not unless you have an all singing, all dancing e-commerce platform that allows you to show, you know, serve two different delivery charges to people. So some stuff you can't test, and just accept that you can't test it. Um, don't don't start going down that road because it leads to madness. Um, <laughs> Quite. So oh, trust me on that one. Um, and then again, going to the, the 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 tools of selling. You know, can you overcome a delivery charge through proof and provenance, for example? Can you say, well, actually, you know, the reason that our delivery charge is because it's two men with white gloves dressed Hmm. as butlers individually bringing (laughs) the thing into your house you know there's 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 ways around this rather than just diddling with a price
1: excellent fantastic all right well thanks matt um wonderful no doubt we could talk for another half an hour i have done that and (laughs) learned my lesson on the editing of these interviews in the (laughs) Uh, (laughs) past um but i really appreciate you um joining me and um, sharing your thoughts is wonderful.
3: Oh,
1: it was so good to hear Matt again. It
0: just made me smile. I miss him. I really miss him. I really enjoyed those years of working with him. And he's such a smart guy that, you know, it's yeah, just brilliant. Absolutely.
1: I, I like, he's one of the few people that I like still like to follow on Twitter. You know, actually, yes, genuinely so, so follow what he's talking about. Yeah. Just an interesting guy.
0: I follow him on, well, I don't do it, I used to use Instagram a lot, and I don't anymore, and I used to follow him on Instagram, and he has the most outrageous life, I envy his life.
1: I know, it's well, don't, don't we all envy him? didn't know he was a, a shareholder. Hang on, <laughs> it, it, yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, don't take that
0: tone, Marcus. Oh, he bought a house with his shareholdings. <laughs> Who bought a house with their pop success
1: record stuff? Oh, what, you mean like my, my, my gold disc in the background there, Paul? Yeah, oh, yeah well, that's... the people can't see it. it's an audio <laughs> podcast. No, but it's quite, It's this is quite, it's a total aside, but obviously the Zoom world we live in now it, it, it keeps coming up. What's behind you? Uh, yeah. You know. And, and I thought, oh, I better put one of my gold discs up. That's well impressive. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really hard. I don't know if you can see just there. Really, is, is yeah. really amusing. It, for it needs but, to be a bit the, lower. Really. Oh, I, can't, I see. I can't. There's the there's the uh, thermostat for the heating. Okay. Oh, and I've got another one up here, but it's in the wrong place. Yeah. <laughs> so you're gonna. Oh, you're it's gonna so have hard. To, this design. You're gonna stuff. have to
0: rearrange your entire room <laughs> just to center on the gold discs.
1: Anyway, yes, but anyway, isn't it? Is I, I'm, I'm, you know, like when you say, and I don't mean this in a kind of patronising way, but people who deserve it, yes. he deserves it. He was like a, you know, he taught us about, oh yeah, about you know the value of of good Google Analytics and that kind of thing, and that's yeah, he we've really done did loads of work in that area over the years. So yeah, good guy, he's he's you know great to see him being successful and I seem seems to be enjoying himself. There was so much he talked about that i absolutely
0: loved from the idea of when he was talking about um saying how many people were on the site and it about hyper that
1: was my favorite point of all it was like i, had, I know it never
0: even occurred to me and it's like nope. oh yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely but the one thing i think the one thing that I mean, he, he, you know, I could go on and on. And I've written loads of notes and I'm not going to cover them all because I'm just end up going to repeat what he's yeah. already said. But the one thing that I think if if I c- could say to the people listening to this, if you could only do one of the things that he talked about, do that one question, that that survey, that exit intent survey, right? It's really me and him have obviously come to this unless he's been following what I do, which I doubt. He has been. He's got better things to do with his life. Um, we both come to that exact same survey completely separately. And I've not heard anybody else particularly talk about it in this way. But it's the idea of when someone goes to leave the site, you ask them, what were you trying to do today? And did you succeed in doing it? Yeah. And that one question gives more insights than absolutely anything um, that I've ever done. It, yeah. I just find it absolutely brilliant, and I, I I almost use it on every project now.
1: It's because it's so, real, isn't it? It's it, it's the whole problem with any kind of uh, pre-launch testing is that it's set up uh, yeah. and it's not actually somebody in the situation where they're actually you would be using whatever it is you're testing. Uh, mm. So yeah, it's it's abstracted basically is the word I'm mm. struggling to find.
0: I suspect he put a few people's backs up with moving a button doesn't change the world. I thought that that made me laugh, but um, you're
1: right. I thought of, I thought of, I wondered how you'd react
0: to that when I was yeah. editing it. Well, I, I mean, it's an interesting one. Yeah, I do agree with him. He, he is, he is absolutely right. I mean, all, all things like that is ever going to do is ensure that people see your call to action, yeah. right? Um, and, you know, so it's a, about, it's about um, basically visual hierarchy and usability, really. That's, that's all that's going to do. It, the only exception is maybe timing. So moving that button so it's at the right place in the journey when people are most receptive to it, that might make a bigger difference. But it, it pales into insignificance compared to things like messaging, product, that kind of stuff, mm. which is what he was focusing on. Yeah. Um, and he's he's totally right. You know, if you're if you're not presenting your product in the right way, if you're not addressing users' questions, if you're not communicating well, um, then then you're going to fail. And that's the one thing that often um, frustrates me uh, about kind of user interface designers um not the designers but the the what the shit that they get basically right. that, so let's say headscape produced a new website for a client mm-hmm. and that website launched and it failed utterly right chances are you're going to get the blame for that right yeah <laughs> well, but, yes <laughs> um but in truth if the content shit and the offering shit, neither of which Headscape gets involved in a lot, you, mm. you do give advice on that, but you don't have copywriters in-house and that kind of thing, um, you know, you're not responsible. That's not your fault, you know, because it's the messaging that is the thing that's really powerful. So, yeah, it always annoys me that designers get blamed for stuff.
1: Mm. Yeah. There you go. Well, we we got broad shoulders. That we have to, kind of, you know, you have to grow them when you're younger, don't you? Not that, not that I'm particularly a designer, but yeah, I suppose I am. I am. I'm not. I am. Well, <laughs> yeah. you you
0: run a design-led company. Let's uh, and be I honest. am
1: involved very much in the early parts of the design phase, so I guess that makes me, but certainly yeah. a little bit UX designer. So yeah, but you, yeah, you've got to accept that. I think you've got to accept anyway that if you're being paid handsome, handsomely, quite often to develop uh, a design, then. You should, you, you use the words, sorry, I'm going all over the place here, but you use the words that we advise and, mm. and about content. And we do content designs part of the package now. We've always done yeah. IA, which is a lot to do with signposting yeah. and labeling and all that kind of thing. So it is our responsibility to a certain extent. And uh, as experts, we shouldn't be allowing our clients to fill our sites with bad content to make them fail. One yeah, could argue. But,
0: well, allowing is a strong word, isn't yeah, all right. it? you know you can certainly advise them um but it, it can get very frustrating because it can get very complicated very quickly if you think about it mm. because you know uh, there are occasions where well let, let's use Wiltshire Farm Foods as an example right. right um when we first started working with Wiltshire Farm Foods I mean this was a very long time a
1: hundred ago. years ago yeah,
0: the very first thing you came across when you, you tried to get onto their website was a postcode entry for That's right, right? Yeah. You had to enter your postcode before you could even see the website. And that was all because they had this franchise model. And the franchise model basically um, allowed each individual franchise to set its own price. So they, they couldn't show you a price until they knew where you lived. So it yeah. was a ridiculous situation. But my point there is that we couldn't fix that overnight because it involved a fundamental organizational change, right? Uh, and that's, that can be often the problem with a website, is it's not, it's not even the messaging. It's not even the usability. Mm. It's actually something fundamentally wrong with the product, you know? <laughs> yeah. um, or at least the value proposition for the product, how the product's being brought to market, who it's being aimed at, that kind of stuff, you know? Yeah. So you quickly stumble into these bigger things. And I, I found myself, perhaps more so than Headscape do, but I find myself slap bang in the middle of those kinds of conversations sometimes where you're having to go, well, you can position this however you want, but... People aren't going to pay that amount for delivery or they're not going to, you Mm. know, do this or that or the other. Um, Uh, Although apparently you can charge a lot for delivery as long as it's a butler that's delivering it with white gloves. gloves.
1: (laughs) So there you go. I was just playing, I was playing, playing, playing devil's advocate. Um, It's absolutely true that. That, yeah, that we do receive the blame when it's often not our fault. I still get, we still get emails. To this day, we did a a site for Vision of Britain years ago, which is like this huge archive of old maps and things. And we get ranty emails from people saying, my, excuse me, my my, my village's name is spelt wrong and things like that. And it's like, woo, it's not us. We just did the interface, you know. (laughs) So, yeah, I was just trying to play devil's advocate. Move
0: yeah. on. stop it you're a <clears> bad man <throat> talking to moving on we're gonna have a quick chat with um the guys from balsamic um who've been sharing little bits of advice throughout this entire season um and yeah it's another good one so let's play this so joining me today again is mike from balsamic how are you doing mike
2: good how are you doing paul
0: Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. So, as you know, we've been talking about um, uh, testing post-launch and and that kind of thing so far on the show. But you always bring us something a little bit different. So what are we we talking about today?
2: Um, So I I thought we might talk about um, usability testing and usability inspection, um, whether it be of your wireframes or your prototypes.
0: Which is very applicable, actually, to what we've been talking about so far, because one of the big things um, that I'm suggesting is that when you um, post-launch, although A-B testing is very good for things like, you know, just little changes to copy and to, to images and stuff like that, if you want to make bigger changes to the site, say like a flow through a particular part of the site, you can't really do that with A-B testing. So that's when you need to go back to usability testing and wireframing and prototyping, that kind of stuff. So, what advice have you got for those people listening in that regard
2: right well um i guess in part of your um continuous gathering of feedback after launch when you start to um uh, gather some feedback and insight about the pain points you might have um recognized after uh, launching a website either from support or other channels um it seems like that's probably a good time to start, um, you know, going back to the original goals Mm. um, that you, and tasks that you expect users to complete and see where there's room for improvement. Um, And I think that often leads to, uh, you know, trying to test some of those ideas um, in your models or wireframes.
0: Actually, I think that's a really interesting point that the idea of, of going back to those early usability tests because so much changes doesn't it over a project and it's very easy to kind of lose focus on where you're going and what you're doing. So I yeah. love the idea of revisiting where you were at the beginning um, and, and then approaching it again. Any other little tips you want to kind of give people in that regards?
2: Yeah. I mean, for, from um, my perspective, it, it's, you know, it's, it's always a, uh, a good, um, time to test your ideas when you, uh, before you've launched them, but after you've launched them, um, if you are considering realigning parts of your interface or a product, um, the, that ideation stage where you're trying new ideas is always kind of a good place to, uh, um, get some of the, um, the changes down in, you know, into some sort of model and test them with a small number of people, just doing discount usability testing. But even bef- even before that step, you can do you know, heuristic evaluation to sort of um, inspect the usability of your new idea and then compare that with um, the original goals and see how that improves the, you know, the experience based on you know, whatever you've identified.
0: So tell us a little bit about, more about what you mean by heuristic evaluation, just for those people that maybe haven't come across that term before.
2: Right. So this is um, this is an ins- an informal usability inspection uh, method um, that we've kind of used in uh, in software development. Uh, taking these uh, heuristic uh, heuristics or, or rules of thumb for usability. Um, most popular set is the um, Jacob Nielsen's uh, heuristics. And whenever we have a, a new interface, we will go through this, um, the, try, trying to complete a task uh, with whatever the, the product is, and then um, look for places in the UI where we break those rules and look to improve those. So, um, you know, a lot of these heuristics have to do. With um, you know the feedback you're getting from the UI and um, you know whether or not um, people are able to recognize um, what to do next, these sort of things.
0: Yeah, absolutely. i'm I'm quite a fan of some of the the almost like survey heuristics where you can actually get the user doing um, some of the heuristic reviews. So I'm thinking about something like the system usability scale. Have you come across that?
2: No, I'm not familiar with that one. Yeah,
0: it's it's quite nice. So basically, what you're doing is, is asking users to rate the usability of the website, and you can um, and it asks it in a series of different standardized questions. Um, and it's almost a little bit like the usability equivalent of a, um, oh, what do they call it, net promoter score. Um, okay. So it's this benchmark you can, you can compare against either over time as you make improvements to the interface or even directly with competitors or other people in the landscape. So there are so many of these great tools out there. Um, but I agree that the, the um, Nielsen Norman Group's heuristic evaluations are really good as well. Thank you so much, um, Mike, for coming on the show. Uh, It's always great to hear another perspective on it. And um, the post-launch period is a particularly tricky one. So it's good to talk to you.
2: Always a pleasure. Thanks.
0: So that about wraps up this uh, particular podcast. Next time, we're going to be looking at the subject of successfully managing your UX projects. Um, which, again, is going to probably just be being lifting quite a lot of the content from um, from my upcoming workshop because they will always be very overlapping. Um, but that's no bad thing. Um, but still come on the workshop because you're going to get yes. considerably more content. just saying, all <laughs> right? Just saying, don't let that put you off or something. I'm not very good at this marketing stuff, am I? Um, okay, so the release date for that one so that uh, you know when it's coming, is the 11th of February. But until then, you're going to have to make do with chuckling for the next oh. month about Marcus's amazing joke.
1: Go! This is, again a, 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 a from Daryl Snow, uh, the king of the joke providers, a um, uh, bit of a dad joke this time. Oh, how good, many, I like those. Yeah. How many tickles does it make, or does it take, to make an octopus laugh?
0: I don't know. How many tickles does it take to make an octopus laugh? Ten tickles. Ten tickles. Yeah, no, no, no <laughs> yeah. No, that's quite good. I quite like that. That's the kind of joke you could tell to a four year old and it would go down very well.
1: Very much so. Yes, I'm looking yeah. forward to doing exactly that.
0: <laughs> yes. Well, like, yeah, of course, your, your grandchild. <laughs> All right, there we go. Thank you very much for listening to this particular lesson. I hope you took away some interesting stuff, and we'll talk to you again in February when we're going to talk about successfully managing and budget. Bye.
2: Oh.